Oh, hello and welcome. My name is Coach Yo, and welcome to my cycle class. I hope you're ready to roll. Oh my goodness. I wonder how this is gonna go. I ran track, but like, I don't know, this is... Oh, here we go. Hey everybody, welcome. Let's get ready to cycle. I just ordered a pizza, so let's wrap this up in 30 minutes or less. Here we go. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking you wanna quit. Well, I'm here to tell you today is not that day. Instead of slowing down, we're gonna pick it up. Let's go. Come on, doing the best I can. <sighs> oh, I'm trying my best. I got these obstacles in my way. I'm trying to run them over. I just don't feel like I can make it. Are you even listening to me? Oh, my Amazon package arrived. Sick. Come on, everybody, two minutes till pizza. Keep it moving, keep it moving. Pedal for that pepperoni, baby. Pedal for that pepperoni. It's time for the final push. I know those legs are tired, but here we go. Pushing it to the end in three, two, one. Well done, young guns. You made it through class, but I'm here to let you know. I want to see you back next week. All of us desire to be better in life. That quest for betterment is really what's behind so much of the fitness craze that we see today in our culture. That's what's behind this Peloton movement or the iFit movement. It's all about that desire to improve. And so often the betterment that we yearn for is not always the betterment that we actually experience. And the reason why is because of the buts in our life. What I mean by that is that you know, often we, we just want to improve physically, and we know that in order to do that, we need to exercise. But it's just really hard to find the time to do that. Or we know that we need to eat healthy in order to feel better physically, but you know, old habits die hard. And the same is true when it comes to our spiritual lives. God has told us how we're supposed to live our life, but you know, there are excuses that we seem to give him, and that gets in our way of experiencing the best that God has for us. So this series, this month, we are going to be confronting those buts that we give to God. And throughout this series, God's word is going to serve like our trainer, and it's going to confront those buts in our life. And unlike the self-help that we hear from our culture, God's word is true. And because it's true, when it's met with God's spirit, that's when transformation begins to happen in our lives. And so today, we're going to begin with the first but that all of us have. And it's something that some of us, it's, it's really subtle, this thing in our life. For others of us, it's really obvious when we have this thing in our life. But it's a thing that holds us back from experiencing all that God has for you and for me. So what's the, what's the thing? What's this first but that each and every one of us struggle with? Well, to tell you about this thing... We want to look at a story today because there are two men who struggled with this same but. And that story is found in the book of 2 Kings. That's found in the Old Testament of the Bible. So I want to encourage you to find a Bible, turn it on, uh, open it up to 2 Kings, and we're going to be in chapter 5 today. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. That's the, the version of the story that I'll be reading from. And as you're navigating there, let me set the stage for us. We are 850 years before the birth of Jesus. The time in Israel is a really difficult time. The kings of Israel, they're, they're not following after God. And so God's not speaking to the kings any longer. Instead, he's speaking only through his prophets. In this case, he's speaking to the prophet and through the prophet Elisha. So these are the days of Elisha where the story is found. 
And our story actually begins not in Israel, but just a little bit north and a little to the east of Israel in a land called Aram. Aram is what we would refer to as modern day Syria. And the capital city of Syria today is the same capital city of Aram then. It's Damascus. And so our story takes place with the man from the land of Aram. Let's begin with the story. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. The king of Aram had great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram great victories. But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. So right away we're introduced to this impressive character. It's a hero in the land of Aram, a mighty warrior, the military commander Naaman. But his name means beautiful and well-built, which is kind of ironic because he suffered from leprosy. Now, when the Bible refers to leprosy, it refers to a whole variety of skin diseases. But think about this as a debilitating skin disease. Often when someone had leprosy in the ancient Near East, it was like a death sentence for them because it was so contagious and there was no cure for it. And so when someone became a leper, they were excluded from being around other people. They had to live outside of town. And anytime they walked through, at least in Israel, they'd have to announce that they were unclean. It was just an awful condition. And that leprosy would slowly eat away at your skin. And so day by day, the disease would grow and become worse. And so Naaman has a problem. Let's hear what happens in the story. At this time, the Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel. And among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day, the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy which is pretty astounding. I mean, here this girl has been kidnapped. She's been taken from Israel into a foreign land. And rather than be bitter about it, she wants her master to be healed. And so it's through this servant girl that Naaman hears about the prophet. Verse four, so Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Well, go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. I will send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. He's gonna try to help him with his political connections. And not only does the king of Aram write a letter of introduction, he loads up Naaman with a bunch of cash. Listen to this. So Naaman started out carrying gifts, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing which I think it's funny that scripture mentions the clothing alongside all of that money. I mean, how, how fancy were these clothes that they got mentioned alongside all this silver and gold? I, I don't know what's up with the clothes. But he brings all this cash and this really important letter. And the letter to the king of Israel said, with this letter, I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. Now imagine you're the king of Israel. And here this military commander who's been raiding your towns and and taking your people captive shows up and he has leprosy and he's now in your court and he's holding a letter from an enemy of yours, another king, and that letter demands that you heal him and he's got all this cash with him. I mean, you're the king of Israel. How do you respond to this? Let's see what happens in verse seven. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay. Maybe maybe that's what the clothes were for. I, I don't know. And he said, am I God that I can give life and take it away? Why is this man asking me to heal someone with leprosy? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. So the king of Israel assumes that this is all a setup to try to create a war with the people of Israel. And so he is distraught. But verse eight, 
But when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and he will learn there is a true prophet in Israel. So now I want you to imagine this scene because Naaman and his entourage show up outside the humble home of the prophet Elisha. Here is verse nine. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message. Elisha won't even come out himself. He says, go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. And Naaman is angry. Verse 11, but Naaman became angry and he stalked away. I thought he certainly would come out and meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord is God and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abnar and the Farpar better than any of the rivers of Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage. And it's right here that we realize what Naaman really struggled with. The thing that Naaman needed to be healed of wasn't just his leprosy. It was something deeper. See, Naaman had this thing in his life that you and I have. And just like Naaman, this thing is gonna hold us back from experiencing all that God has for us in our lives. So what is this thing that Naaman suffered from and that we suffer from? It's pride. It's pride. It's the pride of Naaman. I mean, he's thinking about who he is and, and, and how, how important he is and what a hero he is in his land. And he has all these resources and all this political connection and he shows up and he expects that he's gonna be treated in a certain way and he's not. And he's angry about it. And in his pride, he's not willing to do what was instructed for him to do. And it keeps him from experiencing what God has for him. And in a way, his pride is kind of like his leprosy. You know, that leprosy just, just eats away slowly and slowly in, until it just creates a, a, a debilitating disease. And our pride works in the same way. You know, pride in our lives is, is not uh, us thinking so highly of ourselves. Oftentimes people misunderstand that. They assume that somebody who's prideful just thinks that they're, they're awesome and great and somebody who's humble thinks that they're really low and they think poorly of themselves. But that's actually not a great way to think about pride. In fact, sometimes people who think poorly of themselves and who are often mentally beating themselves up, sometimes they're the most prideful. Because pride isn't about how we think about ourselves. Pride is that we think about ourselves. See, pride is all consumed with us. I love how Psalm 10:4 puts it. The psalmist writes this, he says, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. That's what pride's all about. Pride is, is all focused on me. It's on how I feel about something, how I've experienced something, what I think about something, what's been done to me. Everything is from my vantage point. It's all about me. And there's no room for God in our thinking. And when, when we suffer from pride, it keeps us from experiencing what God has in our lives. And thankfully for Naaman, he had some friends who wouldn't let him stay in his pride. Let's pick up the story in verse 13. But his officers tried to reason with him. And they said, sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? 
So you should certainly obey him when he simply says, go and wash and be cured. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River and he dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him. And I wish I could see that scene. I mean, you know, like I wonder, did, did, did the entourage park a couple blocks down and so Naaman would go into the river by himself? Or did he have them all set up on the banks to kind of protect him? And did, did he keep his sword on when he went into the river? Was he wondering if this was an ambush from the people of Israel to get back at him for raiding the towns? You know, when, he, when he dipped into the river, did he count out loud? Like, did he stop at time four or time five and look at his skin to see if, if anything had happened and it hadn't yet and he wondered if he should keep going? But on that seventh time, when he came up out of the water, a miracle happened in his life. Here's what scripture tells us. And his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child and he was healed. And not only was he healed, his pride was broken and Naaman was transformed. We see a different man come out of that water. Look at the transformation that's happened in his life. Verse 15, then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him and Naaman said, now I know there is no God in all of the world except in Israel. That is a profound thing for someone who came from a pagan land to say. He's been transformed. He said, so please accept a gift from your servant. So now he refers to himself as a servant of Elisha, the prophet of God. I mean, this is a complete transformation in this guy's life. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. Elisha's like, listen, I didn't do anything for you. I just told you what God told you to do. So don't praise me, go praise God, give him honor. And so Naaman does. Verse 17, then Naaman said, all right, but please allow me to take a load, uh, uh, allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place and I will take it back home with me. So he's asking for a whole bunch of dirt to take home with him. I'll explain why in a minute. He said, from now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other God except the Lord. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing, when my master, the king, goes into the temple of the god Ramon to worship there and leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow to. Go in peace, Elisha said. So Naaman started home again. I mean, Naaman's now worried about honoring and worshiping God, even to the spot of saying he wants to collect a bunch of dirt from the place of Israel because he recognized that this was where God transformed him and he wants a memory of that. And he's gonna bring that dirt back with him to his home in, in the land of Syria. And maybe it's there he would daily pray to God or there he would offer burnt offerings only to, to the God of Israel on that dirt. And he's even thinking ahead to some awkward work situations that are awaiting him when he gets back. He knows that his boss, the king, is gonna make him go into the false God's temples and he's gonna have to be there. And Elisha says, listen, God knows your heart, so go in peace. And it's a great story of healing and grace that comes into Naaman's life. But the story's not done. Because I told you that there were two people in this story. And the second one is a person who also suffered from pride. And we expected Naaman to suffer from pride, but the second one, it surprises us. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master should not have let this Aramean get away without accepting any gifts. As surely as the Lord lives, I will chase after him and get something from him. So Gehazi set off after Naaman. 
When Naaman saw Gehazi running after him, he climbed down from his chariot and went to meet him. Is everything all right? Naaman asked. Yes, Gehazi said, but my master has sent me to tell you that two prophets from the hill country of Ephraim have just arrived, and he would like 75 pounds of silver and two sets of clothes to give to them. Again, with the clothes, I don't know what's going on with them, but he spends this lie that he gives to Naaman. Well, by all means, take twice as much silver, Naaman insisted, and he gave him two sets of clothing, tied up the money into two bags, and sent two of his servants to carry the gifts for Gehazi. But when he arrived at the citadel, Gehazi took the gifts from the servants and sent the men back. Then he went in and hid the gifts inside the house. When he went back into his master, Elijah asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? I haven't been anywhere, he said. But Elijah asked him, don't you realize that I was there in spirit when Naaman stepped down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to receive money and clothing? olive groves and vineyards, sheep and cattle, male and female servants. Because you have done this, you and your descendants will suffer from Naaman's leprosy forever. And when Gehazi left the room, he was covered with leprosy. His skin was white as snow. And this is a story of reversal. See, what happens is the story begins with somebody who's outside of the land of Israel. It's an outsider. It's a Syrian. It's somebody who was against God, who was filled with pride, was covered with leprosy, and who was trusting in his own pride and his own resources. And that outsider comes into the land of Israel carrying a truckload of cash and is there transformed. He meets God. His pride is broken. He's humbled. And he leaves Israel, not with a truckload of cash anymore, but with a truckload of dirt because he now values so much the things of God that he wants just even the dirt of where God's land is. He's transformed. But Gehazi, the person who lived on that dirt, who woke up every day and was in the presence of God, who saw Elisha the prophet hear from God and he would have heard oracles about God's prophecies and God's truth and he would have seen miracle after miracle in service of Elisha, he didn't value it. He knew about it, but it didn't transform his heart. And so when Naaman shows up with all the money, he values that. And Naaman leaves with his pride busted, healed from his leprosy. And Gehazi receives that leprosy because he is consumed with his own pride. And Gehazi's presence in this story teaches us a really important point about pride. And here it is. It's that being aware of God doesn't prevent pride. I mean, Gehazi was very much aware of God. He was daily in God's presence. He knew about God, but it hadn't affected his heart. And folks, the same can be true for us. We have to remind ourselves and know that just because we're people that maybe we go to church on a regular basis, that doesn't mean that pride doesn't affect us. In fact, I think that at times, those of us who are believers in Jesus, we might even be more susceptible to pride because it'd be really easy for us to just take God's grace for granted. And we know God's truth. We build our lives on God's truth. And if we're not careful, we can be so consumed with the truth of God up here that it never transcends our heart here. And it can lead to all sorts of pride in our life. And if it does, it keeps us from experiencing what God has for us in our lives. So how do we know if we are suffering from pride. 
Well, in this story, there are a number of signs of pride. Let's take a look at them together. Here's the first one. The signs of pride we see in the story is entitlement based on position or past. And we see that with Naaman. I mean, Naaman walks in and says, hey, listen, I'm a mighty warrior. All these things are being done for me. I expect people to treat me and respond to me in a certain way. He's, he's entitled based on his position. Gehazi is entitled based on his past. See, in his mind, he's been serving faithfully God for years. And he feels like God kind of owes him, right? He feels like God owes him and he feels like because of all of his faithfulness and because the fact that he's stayed committed and has been serving Elisha for all of these years that, that somehow now he needs to get something for him. How about you? Did you ever feel like maybe God owes you because of all the years of faithful service or because you, you've stayed committed when other people have fallen away? And, and is there a sense of entitlement that's creeping into your soul? If so, it's a sign of pride. And that will then lead to the second sign of pride that we see, which is anger over unmet expectations. You see, we can become angry when God doesn't respond in the way that we expect him to respond. And we can get upset over those unmet expectations. We see that with Naaman. He was angry. He thought Elisha was gonna treat him a certain way. And we even see that with Gehazi. He thought Elisha was gonna treat him a certain way by receiving the money. And oftentimes, we can be upset with God when he doesn't meet our expectations. And we see that all throughout scripture. In fact, we see Jesus respond to that. There's a story that's recorded in Luke chapter four, when Jesus is preaching in his hometown of Nazareth. And the context of this is the people are upset with Jesus because they've been hearing that he had been doing all these miracles in all these other cities, and he was from here. This was his hometown, yet he hadn't done many miracles here. And the reason is because Jesus knew the heart of the people. And their heart wasn't near God. It wasn't searching after the things of God. But the people felt entitled to that. And so they became angry and upset with Jesus. And Jesus, in responding to them, actually quotes this story. And he quotes this story. And he said, in the days of Elisha, there were many people in Israel who had leprosy. Yet none of them were healed. Yet it was only Naaman the Syrian who was cleansed from his leprosy. And Jesus is essentially saying to the people, God's not obligated to meet your expectations. You need to align your heart with him because healing comes to those whose hearts are after God. And the people heard those words of Jesus and it made them so angry, they wanted to kill Jesus. Are you upset with God because your life hasn't turned out the way that you expected it to turn out? Maybe a sign of your pride. The third one we see in this story is a willingness to do big things for God, but an unwillingness to do little things. That is a sign of pride. And we see that absolutely in Naaman's story. He was willing to do some really big things, go on an epic adventure, give lots of money, but dip in the river? No, that was too much. How about you? Katie Brazelton is an author, and in her book, Pathway to Purpose, she tells the story of a time in her life in her early 30s. Uh, her husband had divorced her and they had young kids at the time. And in that season of divorce, her life just got turned upside down. And, and she was really starting to question what her purpose was for life. And in the search of, of that purpose and that meaning, she thought that she was gonna do a big thing for God. And this was the late 1980s. And so she had heard about Mother Teresa and the mission that she had been doing in Calcutta, India. And so Katie made plans and she went on a big journey to go over halfway around the world to go serve the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India. And when she arrived, they handed her toenail clippers and she had the opportunity to clip the toenails of these homeless women whose feet were just disgusting. And Katie said in that moment, she wrestled with God in her soul. 
See, coming halfway around the world to serve the poorest of the poor, do a big thing for God, no problem. But you want me to clip toenails? Oh, that was just too much. And in that wrestling, she was reminded about Jesus who took care of the feet of his disciples. And so clip by clip, toenail by toenail, she worked on the feet of those women in Calcutta. And with every clip of that toenail clipper, a little more of her pride broke. And she was finally ready to understand the purpose that God had for her. You willing to do big things for God, but not the little things? Has God called you to do a little thing and you've been resistant to it? If so, that is a sign of pride. And that leads to our fourth and final sign of pride, and that's making somebody pay for what they've done to you. And we see that with Gehazi. He, he was so upset that Naaman, that this man who was responsible for raiding the, the towns of Israel, would come in and receive in his land a blessing and a healing from his God and then go back without it costing him something. And so he was determined and he was gonna take matters into his own hands and he was gonna get something from Naaman. And folks, we often do the same thing with people. And we may not do it economically by making them pay, but we do it relationally. How many of you who are married have ever given your spouse the cold shoulder? You know what I mean by the cold shoulder? It's when your spouse has offended you and then you do the very mature thing of acting as if they're not in the room with you, right? Even though they're standing right next to you. It's just such an offensive way to treat another human being as if they didn't exist or they weren't there. And folks, whenever you do that, it's just a sign of your pride. And I know all about that because that's like my go-to move in our marriage. And folks, it is a sign of my ongoing pride. Because in my pride, I'm not willing to admit and be vulnerable that I've been hurt. And so instead, in my pride, I wanna take it out on somebody else. I'm gonna hurt you like you hurt me. And these are, these are signs of pride. So we, we look at this list and all four of these, and, and I don't know about you, but I look at this list and I go, check, 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 check. This is so true in my life. These signs of pride are evident. So the question is, what do we do about it? What do we do when we realize that we have pride in our life and it's keeping us from what God has for us? And what we do is we do what Naaman did. We get in the water. We gotta get in the water. And the water that I'm talking about may be different for each and every one of us, but when we realize that we have an issue of pride, we need to get in the water. For some of you, you know that you have wronged somebody else in your life. You've mistreated them, you have, you have not acted kindly or appropriately toward them, and you know you need to ask them for forgiveness. But in your stubborn pride, you are unwilling to admit that you were wrong. And so the healing that God wants to bring to that relationship can't happen because your pride's in the way and God needs to bust it. And you need to be willing to say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And that's the water that you need to get into. For others of you, you know that God's called you to do something. Maybe he's called you to serve. And right now you're kind of looking around and you're like, well, there's a lot of other things I could be doing with my time and I just don't know if I want to commit to having that in my schedule on a regular basis. And you have all of these excuses that you put forward, but you know that you need to get in the water of serving. And you just haven't done it. And God wants to use you to bring hope and healing to other people. And God wants to bring hope and healing to you through serving and you haven't been willing to do it and you just need to get in the water and sign up and serve and make time for it and commit to it because God's calling you to this. Or maybe for some of you, you realize that, that your marriage is just a mess 
and COVID exposed all these things. And after all the fights and all the disagreement and all the resentment, you finally agreed that you were gonna go see a marriage counselor. And you went to that first session and it was just terrible. You hated every moment of it because in your pride, you didn't wanna sit there and acknowledge all the things that are wrong in the relationship. And so consequently, you're thinking, I'm not gonna go back but we need to be like Naaman and stay in the water. He had to dip himself seven times. And for some of us, we know what God's called us to and we just took that initial step to do it. But the thought of continuing in this just feels exhausting and it's all because of our pride. Folks, stay in the water. You know, for me personally, this idea of getting in the water is, is really tangible right now. Um, several weeks ago, I mentioned to many of you that I was suffering from a, a hip injury that was from running. And uh, just as a quick aside, thank you to all of you who sent in uh, so many suggestions. Uh, many of you reached out with names of doctors and stretches and weird things to eat. And uh, thank you for that. It was really humbling and just really encouraging to have all that support from, from our church family. So thank you for that. Uh, by the way, none of that worked. Uh, and the reason isn't because it was bad advice. It was because there was something uh, more serious going on with my hip. And so a couple weeks ago, I did an MRI. We, we found that there is a pretty significant stress fracture and some other stuff going on with it. And so the doctor has me on a plan, but he called me and he said, Kyle, I know you've been trying to run again. Do not run. Stop running. Stop rowing. I can't even bike. He said, the only thing you can do for exercise until this heals is swim. So quite literally, I have been in the water a lot lately. And as I've been swimming laps, I've had a lot of time to reflect and what I've been reflecting on is that my running over the last few years, while it's something I love, I, I kind of lost sight of the love of it. And I got all consumed in the performance of it. It was all about how many miles am I running and how fast am I running those miles and what's my next race. And it was all about performance. And I realized that now that I'm missing this, I've lost the joy of running. And folks, for some of you, you've lost the joy of your faith. Because for you, it's all about performance. Your faith has become about what sin you avoid, what Bible study you've consumed, what new knowledge and information you've acquired, what things you've done for God, and it's all about your performance, and it's your pride that's led you there. And in your pride, you're, you're, you're trying to prove to yourself or prove to God that you're worthy of his love and his, and his grace, and, and folks, that's, that's just, that's not what it's about, and what you need to do is get in the water of God's grace and just sit there and soak in it. It's God's grace that comes into our life. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. That, that's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us. The apostle Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. This is a gift that God's given to us. It's not by works so that no one can boast. God wants you to receive the gift of his grace and enjoy it. Some of us just need to rest and get in the water of enjoying the grace of God, and resting in the joy of our salvation. And that leads to the final thing, the final water that some of you may need to get into. And it quite literally is a tub of water. It's the water of baptism. And now I know what Naaman did in the Jordan River was not baptism. I just want to be really clear about that. God had given, the word of God had given him instruction, and he was just being obedient to it by getting into the water. 
But the parallel is just too good to miss. See, when we become believers in Jesus, Jesus tells us that we too need to be obedient to him by getting in some water. And that's the water of baptism. Because it's in baptism that we publicly proclaim that we're following after Jesus and that we have received grace. And folks, I know that as a grown adult or as a, as a student or uh, you know, somebody who, who willingly chooses to allow someone else to dunk you, that's kind of a humbling experience. But folks, it's in the midst of that that we're busting our pride and we're acknowledging that we've received the grace of God. And here at Wooddale, we practice baptism by immersion. That just means that we go all the way under the water and we only baptize somebody after they've said yes to Jesus. And the reason we do that is because of the deep symbolism in baptism. See, it's in baptism by immersion that we identify that we, because of our sin, we were dead and separated from God. And so we identify that just as Jesus died and was buried in the grave, so we too go under the water saying, we now have died to our old self, our old way of life, our sinful way of life, and it's dead, just like Jesus was dead on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. And so just as Jesus was risen to new life, so we too come up out of the water with new life animated by God's spirit, having been washed clean from our sin. And it's this beautiful moment of proclaiming the grace of God. If you have said yes to Jesus, but have not yet been baptized, that is your next spiritual step. And I wanna encourage you to do that, to be baptized. In fact, we have a huge baptism celebration coming up on August 22nd. And if you wanna be baptized and join us with this, go here, wooddale.org slash baptism, and you can sign up to be baptized. So it's on Sunday evening, the 22nd of August. You're gonna hear a little more about this uh, as we wrap up our service. But uh, all campuses are invited to this huge baptism celebration. It's gonna be outside. We're gonna have uh, music and it's gonna have a big festival feel to it. And we're gonna have many of you be baptized in the name of Jesus. And it is going to be incredible. And I so want you to be part of this. But folks, for some of you, you may be thinking to yourself, like, yeah, I, I mean, baptism is something I need to do, but here's the deal. Like, I just, I don't know, I don't feel like I'm at that level spiritually. I'm not ready yet to be baptized. But folks, let me just say, that's your pride speaking. Because it's not about you achieving a certain level of your, your faith. It's all about recognizing the grace of God in your life. You just, you just need to get in the water. And for others of you, you feel like, well, you know, I was baptized as a child. And if that was true and that was something your family did for you, Hey, that's a, that's a great part of your family history. And, and this isn't to be re-baptized as if somehow that baptism didn't have any significance to it, but your family did that for you. That was their decision, not yours. And all you're doing now is you're affirming the decision that they made so many years ago. And in fact, you're saying what you hoped to be true about my life and my faith has now become manifest and is now true in my life. You're just kind of confirming what was done for you before. So I wanna encourage you, if you haven't yet been baptized, to take those steps, get in the water, and be baptized. All right, for all of us, our pride prevents us from receiving the grace of God. And God wants to bust our pride so we can enjoy his grace in our lives. So the question for every single one of us is what is the water that you need to get into? Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, as we wrap up this message, Father, we come now to you and take a moment to humble ourselves in your presence. And Father, we ask that your spirit would speak to each and every one of us. And Lord, that you would tell us and reveal to us the water that we need to get into. Father, what is it that you are calling us to do? 
And I pray for each of us who are listening to this message that we would take a moment and maybe just as a sign of, of kind of being willing to hear what God has for you, would you maybe just take your hands and unfold them if they were folded or just kind of turn your palms up, up, to, up, to, up to heaven? Almost as, as you saying, God, I'm willing to hear, I'm willing to receive the instruction that you have for me. What is the water I need to get into today? Is it forgiveness that I need to receive from someone? Is it forgiveness that I need to give to someone? Is it an apology I need to make? Is it a step of service that I need to give? Is there someone in my life that I need to be more intentional about reaching out to? You've asked me to to help reach out to that person and I've just been putting it off. Or is it a big step of faith of choosing to get in the waters of baptism? Father, would you reveal through your spirit to each and every one of us, what is the water we need to get into today? And then Father, I pray that like Naaman, you would give us people in our lives who will hold us accountable and encourage us to be obedient to your word. And Father, that we will receive the healing and the hope that you have for us when our pride is busted. And it's in your name we pray, amen.